Good morning, everyone. Uh, we are in the book of John, the second chapter. And before we begin, let us, uh, I just want to open us in a word of prayer. I know we just prayed, but I need to pray again. Let's pray. Father, you are incredibly kind to give us an opportunity not only to sing your praises, but to hear from your son, Jesus Christ, who embodies all your glory, all your majesty, all your greatness. May his work, his words, and his life be more important to us this morning than our singing or even me. May he take center stage so that we might fall down and worship him and acknowledge that he has overcome the world on our behalf. In his name I pray, amen. The Gospel of John doesn't waste very much time getting into the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. The very first chapter, we saw a lot of things happening. We saw the beginning of time and Christ being there, creating all things, being the embodiment of who God the Father is. He is fully God and fully man, perfect in all creation. And he is also the eternal word of God, meaning that he is equal with God the Father because he is fully God. And we saw that he came into this world and in the book of John, we saw the beginning of his ministry take place when John the Baptist was calling all of Israel to repentance from a dead religion to one that embodied and embraced Jesus Christ. And he himself then was baptized under John and immediately there's a response by the people. And so far, six people have answered the call to follow Jesus Forgetting all other things, forgetting their job, forgetting their livelihoods, leaving their families, and following him. Because in the book of John, we're going to see only he has the words of eternal life. Only he can overcome the world. Only he can answer the problem of sin and pain and suffering and the anguish that we even face today. So as Jesus Christ is displayed as our Messiah, the promised one, from all the Old Testament, he is acknowledged as the overcoming God-King. And that theme is throughout the entirety of the book of, of, I was going to say Ecclesiastes, caught myself, the book of John, and I think pretty much in all of Scripture, Jesus is displayed as the one who is promised that will take care of our greatest fears and our greatest enemy, death. And the uncertainties of what might follow after death, Christ makes certain. Now, right in the book of, of John, the second chapter, I want to look at verse 1 and verse 12 of this section. We're going to kind of look at bookends, um, not because they're not important verses, but I want to get through those two verses so we get to the meat and heart of what's happening in the book of John. And throughout all of Scripture, Scripture gives us some Hints about geography. Now, we don't know where all the towns are. In fact, we're in the town of Canaan today, but we don't even know exactly physically where that town is, but we know the geographical area. And one of the things that was helpful to me, and let me just read those two verses. Uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and verse 12. 
after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers, and actually that word there is siblings, so Jesus had not just a mother and a father, but he also had physical brothers and sisters, which would have been half-brothers and sisters, because obviously God the Father through the Holy Spirit conceived in Mary, and Mary had Jesus, but Joseph and Mary had other siblings or other children, so Jesus went down with his brothers and siblings and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, if you look at a map, generally, uh, the map, when we look at a, oh, wow, rewind. If I was to say, I am going up to Denver, what direction am I going? North. If I said I'm going to go down to Trinidad, what direction are we going? South. That is an American idea of directions. In the Old and New Testament, when they said they were going up somewhere or down somewhere, they physically meant, I'm going to change elevation. So when they say, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, it wasn't that they were going north to Jerusalem, but they were going higher than where they were. So up meant up, and down meant down. So they're in Galilee, which is a little bit east, excuse me, a little bit west of the Sea of Galilee. So here you have the Sea of Galilee, here you have the Dead Sea, here you have the Mediterranean, and so the Sea of Galilee is up here, and Galilee is kind of in this direction. And so he's kind of in this spot right here, and he's kind of going up and down, which means he's changing elevation, because the Sea of Galilee is lower than the rest of the area. So when he's headed towards the Sea of Galilee, he's always going to say, I'm going to go down, even though he's going north. Does that make sense? So that helped me when I figured that out, like, why does they keep going up, but they're going south? It has nothing to do with direction. It has to do with elevation. And if you ask me, that kind of sounds like, yeah, that's the way it should be. Uh, so going up and down. So on the third day, after he'd gathered his six disciples, the beginning of his bunch, they went to a wedding in Canaan and Galilee, which meant they actually went south and north. Uh, I mean, excuse me, south and up. And in verse 12, after the events of this wedding, which would have, in the days of the New Testament, been anywhere from five to seven days long, which was all paid for the groom's family. Not the bride's family, the groom's family. And it would have been a celebration for the entire region for five to seven days, mainly of drinking and eating and telling stories to each other. So it was a huge wedding festival, uh, which would have been super common, after that, they went down, which actually meant they went north to Capernaum, which is a little village by the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus left this region, lots of people followed him. His mom and his brothers and sisters and the disciples he had. After the story of Jesus going to Jerusalem uh, when he was around 10 or 11, maybe even 12 years old, uh, there's no more mention of Joseph, his father, in Scripture. So at this point, because the Gospels do not mention him at all, it's most likely he has passed away at this time. Most likely, although that's, that's reading into it, but he's not present. But his close family, his mom, his brothers and sisters, and his disciples all follow him to the next town. And there's a reason why they decided to leave everything in Galilee and in Nazareth to follow him. And that takes place in verse 2 through verse 11. In these verses, we have some incredibly important principles. And it has nothing to do 
with the Christian's use of alcohol. And you might say, well, Tim, but isn't this a wedding feast and this isn't his first miracle where he turns water to wine? Yes, it is, and we'll get to that. But believe it or not, the whole point of this text is not about alcohol itself. Because we know in Scripture, from God's own mouth, that we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we see it in other places like Psalm 104, Amos 9.14, as well as Isaiah 55.1, and a couple times in Scripture, that the drinking of alcohol is fine and good and considered a blessing by God if it is not abused to drunkenness. Scripture condemns, with no uncertain terms, drunkenness. Scripture never condemns the drinking of alcohol in a normal, in a normal process. And I'm not going to go through and debate it. I'm not going to talk about uh, the misconception, well, the water was bad back then, so they had to add a little bit of wine to their water in order to make it a little bit more palatable and kill all the germs. False. Or, you know what, it was very weak alcohol back then because they didn't have the refining processes. False. You could get drunk on it, which means one thing. It had to be somewhat strong if you got drunk. Um, but the whole point of it is not whether or not a Christian should drink or not drink alcohol. The point of it, believe it or not, is to demonstrate to us that old rituals have nothing in common with the glory of Jesus Christ and his coming. That the old rituals that the Old Testament had were dying and dead and brought only death to the people. But Christ brings a joyful happiness to our lives with God. And we're going to see that displayed, first of all, in the first two verses, in verses 2 and 3, in which it says, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Everybody's going to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Wow. Like stating the obvious, I don't know why Mary thought in this entire process that somehow Jesus needed to be involved with um, what the bridegroom had provided for the families and for the feast. Uh, maybe Mary had a really close relationship with this family and thought, you know what, this is kind of embarrassing because it hasn't lasted five to seven days. So Jesus, the wine ran out. And I can totally understand Jesus's response. He says in the next two verses, and we're going to look at this in, uh, for a second, uh, verse 4 and 5. Remember Mary says, they've run out of wine at the wedding feast. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, I, I, I get the laughter. I, I, get, I totally get it. Um, there is, uh, it's not as bad as you think. Okay, he's not disrespecting his mom. But put it in this perspective. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. Fully God and fully man. So he does have a mother, Mary, but he is fully God and fully man. You think he knows that the wine ran out? Absolutely. Do you think that's the most pressing thing in his life right now? The wine's run out and the guests aren't going to have enough to drink. I don't think that's bothering him. It's not his wedding. But on top of that, 
he gives us a clue of what's happening here in these verses. He tells his mom, my time has not come yet. It's almost as if he's saying, you know what, I know there's a lot of things going on here, but in the end, according to the scheme of God and why I'm here, this is not that important. And your timing on things doesn't match up with God's timing. He's driving that point home. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Mom, you, you don't know the bigger picture here. You want this immediate fix to this. I am here for something better than an immediate fix. I am here, and he tells us later on in John chapter 12 and John chapter 17, that his hour has come when he embraces the suffering of the cross. That's why Christ came. Christ did not come to be a miracle worker or to solve mom's problems or to answer mom's call for help. He's come to answer our call for help, our cry for help, our need for help. The big one. The fact that we were destined for that cross. That that was our cross, our name on it. And he said, I'm going to take it on your behalf. That's why I've come. But it gives us a beautiful lesson about God's timing and our timing. And what we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes in the third chapter is that there is a time and season for everything. And you know what? The times and seasons will come and pass, and there will be needs, and there will be fulfillment of needs, and there will be needs, and no fulfillment of needs. None of that should have a role in our life of making us happy or unpleasant. The Lord's timing is not always our timing. Amen? Amen. And Jesus is here to remind his mom, listen, my timing and my role has nothing to do with wine, nothing to do with weddings, nothing to do this insignificant. But he takes this insignificant problem of running out of wine and he does something amazing. And maybe Mary just had a hint of this and so he, she tells the servants taking care of all the wine, all the refreshments at the wedding, if he tells you to do something, just do it. See, I don't think she took offense to this. I think she realized her timing and her needs are not the same as Christ's timing and Christ's needs. And I think if we were to align with one of those, we want to be on Christ's side. We want his timing and we want him to meet the needs he feels we have, not our needs. Because if we asked him to fulfill our needs, he'd be nothing more than a Santa Claus. Give me this, 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 and this. And God goes, that's not what you need. You don't need a fulfillment of stuff in your life. You don't need all your problems solved. You don't need all your relationships fixed. You don't need your job fixed, your family fixed, your health fixed. You don't need that. What you need in my time is your sin fixed, your heart fixed. Resurrection to take place in your soul for you to be alive again in him. All the other stuff he can answer, Tim, what do I have to do with that? How important is that really in life? It's not that important. It makes life a little bit more comfortable, yes. But Tim, is that what you really need? No, it isn't. It isn't, Jesus. Well, Tim, what do you really need? I need your glory to be manifest in my life. I need you to solve the real problem that you came to solve, sin. 
the suffering and pain that that sin causes me and others. Solve that, Father. Jesus, answer that prayer. Answer that need. Help me and my spiritual life above the physical things of this life. Mary may not have caught that right away. His disciples certainly didn't catch that right away. And I guarantee you none of the religious leaders in that day caught it. But we can catch it. We can see that his timing is perfect for the problems he has come to solve. And he does not solve our problems half measured. He solves it completely. And he begins to address the issue of uh, there's no wine. So, in verse 6, all the way down to verse 10, we have this very first example of a miracle, a sign by Christ, ushering in his kingdom. We're told a little bit in verse 6 that there were six stone jars uh, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So there were six huge stone jars. I have no idea how large it would have to be to hold 20 or 30 gallons, anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water. Uh, but we're told what those jars were for. The jars were not for drinking. You get thirsty, it wasn't for drinking. It was for Jewish ceremonial washings. It was for making sure you cleansed and purified yourself for the wedding. Now, this is a beautiful question. Who gave the Israelites that instruction to use those, that water to purify yourself and cleanse yourself for the wedding? Who gave them that? And do not answer God. Please don't. Who gave him that answer? Or who gave him that ritual? The religious leaders through time gave them all these rules of how to be cleansed. And if you weren't cleansed, you weren't to have fellowship with the other people. And Jesus got into trouble with the Pharisees later on in the stories in John and the other Gospels. Hey, why don't your disciples, and why doesn't Jesus follow the cleansing rituals? It wasn't God's rituals. It was theirs. They added rule upon rule upon rule upon rule to make sure that you were physically, and they thought maybe spiritually, clean and separated before God. So they had all these rules. Wash your hand here, wash it this way, wash it this way, wash it this way, have someone dab a towel on it, now you could eat. God did not give them those rules. They invented them and put them upon themselves as a standard of how godly I am, how good am I, how accepted by God I am. But more importantly, look at how much better I'm doing this than everybody else. It was a matter of pride and arrogance. Man-made rules heaped upon by the name of we're doing it for God, but they made it all up. Religious rules and propaganda and steps and procedures and laws and policies in order to make them look good before one another. It wasn't there for drinking. It wasn't there for any other reason. And the miracle is what Jesus does to it. Not so much just turning it into wine, but he's making a statement that I'm taking all of those man-made rules of what's good and right and holy and makes you better before God, and he is totally turning it on its head as different is water 
to wine. So we're told we have these jars filled with water. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So in the process, obviously, as people are coming into the wedding and leaving the wedding, they're going in and washing their hands and doing all the religious stuff and making sure that their hands are dried the proper way and they don't get dirty water on other things. And so by the time that this wine has run out, Jesus just says, hey, fill them up again. So they fill up the jars again to the brim. 120 to 180 gallons of water filled in these. They had to be massively heavy just made out of stone, clay, whatever that was, that pottery, just huge jars of water. And he says, just fill them up to the brim, and they do. Verse 8, and then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Remember, Mary had given these servants instruction, do whatever he says. Let me ask you this. By the time everyone in the wedding had gone into the wedding and had the feast and they're washing their hands, filling up the jars with water to the top, did that make the water clean? You're washing your hands and I'm guaranteeing you that water was sort of like that bath water. And I know some of you probably can tell a story or at least your grandparents could tell you the story that on Saturday nights you took a bath. Everyone took a bath in the same water. Dad started because he's dad. And I went to mom and all the kids. And if you were the youngest kid, you got the water that was already used by four or five people in the house. Guarantee you that was not clean or drinkable water. All they did was just fill it to the brim. All the dirt, all the filth, all the washed hand water that was in there was still in there. He just filled it up to the top. Certainly didn't cleanse it. But they followed his direction. They took a scoop of water, and they must have been thinking to themselves, oh my, this is going to make it to YouTube. Just watch me fill this water with a ladle of water and give it to the guy in charge, and we're going to see him drink filthy hand wash water. Watch it. I mean, I have no idea what their attitude was, but they were obedient. That tells us that maybe Mary had a really strong relationship in the community where when Mary said something, everybody kind of said, oh, Mary said it, let's, let's do it. You know Jesus, he's the perfect kid, so Mary must have done something right. Let's do what Mary says. Whatever the circumstances are, we're told very clearly this all took place as Jesus instructed. So they take the ladle of water, they take it to the guy in charge, and who knows what this guy is, um, but they, uh, they took the water, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, verse 9 now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now that makes total sense. I'm going to fill people up with the good wine. So they that first impression and taste they have is, wow, they went all out. Great, great service. Amazing wedding feast. Incredible wine. And by the time you've had that second drink, or by the time the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh days come along, hey, if it's just lightly colored pink, purple water, we're, we're good to go. But the master of the wedding feast, who is in charge of the whole celebration of some, somehow, he calls the guy 
and says, I cannot believe you did this, but this is the best wine. The best possible wine. It must have been amazing. I'm not a wine drinker, so I can't tell you a $5 or a two-buck chuck type of wine or a three-bill Jill from a $100 bottle of wine. I, I can't tell that. But these folks, after a week of celebration, realized that what he had been given was the best of the best. And would we expect nothing less from Christ to give the best? Of course we expect him to give the best. Everything he does is best and awesome and right and perfect and excellent. Even when it comes down to the type of wine he creates. It's a miracle. He took wine, water and made wine in the process of that guy carrying the cup to the wedding feast manager, the guy in charge. It transformed, miraculously was created into the best they had ever had. See, I think that was Christ telling us from the very beginning when he takes on man-made religious guidelines of what is right and wrong, when he enters in, he stops it and gives you something better. Christ gives you something better than ritualistic wa washing of hands. He gives you something better than what clothes you can wear, how long your hair can be, what kind of tattoos you can have, what kind of music you can listen to, can you dance or not dance. He gives you something far better, more joyous than that. He gives you a true, living, joyful relationship with God the Father with no strings attached except grace. He offers that joyfulness to everyone. And he completely dismantles in his very first miracle the authority of man's ritualistic religions over a relationship with God the Father. And he's at the center of it and it is a foreshadowing of what he's going to do on the cross where he completely fulfills everything in the Old Testament and completely destroys every way you've created to approach God. Every way a church is created to approach God. Every religion that says this is how you approach God. He says no. It's like filthy, dirty, hand soap water. I offer you life abundantly and it's joyful and it makes your heart glad and merry and there's nothing wrong with that it is a symbol of the new life he gives everyone who calls upon him for salvation and we're told in verse 11 this the first of his signs jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him that's what was meant here what was meant here in this miracle his first miracle is that it was to reveal his glory it was to let people around him know that he was not just a good teacher or charismatic but that he had power over creation that he is indeed who he says he is. And he's starting to pull back the mysticism and the unknown of who is Christ. That guy from Nazareth? Really? Can anything good come out of that place? He says, yes. I can reveal God's glory because I am God. 
And he's starting to give people in a little picture into how radical his message is that over 2,000 years later, we are transformed and changed by the same message that Jesus Christ came into this world as fully God and fully man, that he came to overcome sin, death, and the devil, and that everyone who calls upon his name shall be saved. And that salvation is to the utmost. It isn't a partial salvation, an almost salvation, or what do you have to contribute to salvation? It is full. And it is free. He didn't charge the bridegroom for this miracle. He didn't charge people five bucks for a glass. He performed this miracle for free to demonstrate and display his power, his glory, his majesty. Now, glory means fame, brilliant perfection, splendor, honor, recognition for greatness and supremacy. He wanted it on full display that he is God and there is no other, that he is in their midst and he is indeed the Messiah, the one promised to Adam and Eve that would crush the serpent's head. He's here. It's him. Listen to what uh, Moses says in Ecclesiastes, uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? No one is like him. He's doing wonders. He's majestic. He's glorious. He's brilliant. That there is none like him at all. In John chapter 1, verse 14, and we saw this on Christmas Eve, it says, And the word became flesh, and the flesh drunk, uh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 3, it says this. Dramatic pause, dramatic pause, dramatic pause. Point. He is the radiance, the brilliance, the shining of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in Colossians chapter 1, it says this of Christ in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him and through him were created in heaven and on earth everything visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. God will never share his glory with man-made rules of religion. He only shares his glory with himself and never with another. And anytime man adds, this is how you please God, this is how you live a holy life, this is how you become clean, he destroys it. He hates it when we add anything to the relationship that he has made free. The second you say, well, you have to have faith and, or you have to live like this to really please God, you have just violated his first miracle. 
of cleansing us from all man-made ritualistic rules and laws. What do you need to have a relationship with Christ and the Father? All you need is Christ. He does everything. Don't add anything to that relationship. Don't add one little rule to this is how you live a holy life. He tells us how to live a holy life by loving him above all things and loving one another as yourself. That's the only law of holy living you need. You need nothing else but him. Two points to take home. The first is that Jesus created in this miracle and he put an end to the perversions of God's religion. Don't add a thing to God's religion because you will pervert it. You will decay it, destroy it, and you are misrepresenting God himself. And I, I've never met God face to face, but I would hate to be the one that tells God, I added to what you required because I kind of knew better, God. Ooh. I do not want to be in the universe when God comes down and brings that hammer of judgment upon that attitude. And he's going to bring it swift because the whole point of Christ's coming was to destroy that enemy of ours, our own self-made rules of what religion is about. And then lastly, it is not good enough to be amazed at the power of work, or person of Jesus. It can be amazing to see these miracles and be fascinated with the miracle worker of Jesus. He probably can take wool and make it into gold. Well, I know that he can take things that are dead and bring them to life. He's done that for me. Has he done that for you? Has he brought the deadness of your heart to life? Has he breathed new life into you, giving you hope and joy in a salvation that is unbelievably amazing that it's hard to put words to it? Has he done that for you? Logan is going to come up and we're going to sing uh, our last song today. And the song is commonly known as a doxology. And I think that the, the very first and last stanza you're going to be very familiar with if you've been in especially traditional churches for any amount of time. Doxology simply means praise to God. Praise to God. I don't know of any other single response that created people can have than to praise God when we start to find out how glorious Jesus Christ is. So as you stand and you sing this song and you think of the words being applied to you in light of what Christ has just shared with us, that he is here to put an end to religiousness and put feet and life to a relationship with God, there is no other response that we can have but to praise him for who he is. Let's stand and sing.